Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the ways we can make a difference in the world, love is the best. When we choose to love, we're setting aside intolerance, prejudice, and apathy. Love inspires us to take care of one another and see each person as a child of God. God has equipped us with everything we need to make a difference. For what the world needs now is love. Cody Coleman was actually born in prison. His mother was serving time when she gave birth to her son. He was then taken and given to his grandparents, her parents, but they were older, they didn't have a lot of energy, and they were very poor. And so growing up was really tough. When his mom got out of jail, she came back and joined the family. And they finally were able to determine that she really did have a, a mental illness. She loved animals, though. And in the end, she had 16 dogs and cats. Now, it turned out that Cody was allergic to dogs and cats. They didn't know that. They didn't really care about that. And at home, it was always a struggle just to breathe. And they had so little money, there was never enough food. So it turned out that Cody had two good reasons to love going to school. One, at school, he could breathe. Two, he got something to eat. So his grades weren't all that great, but he continued to go to school because he wanted to breathe and eat. And there he started noticing, though, that he really did have fun with math. And as he started trying to apply himself to math, his teachers noticed, and they began to see just how good he was with math. He started showing a real interest in computers. But the problem was this school was not a very affluent school, not affluent at all. Their ratio of students to computers was 19 students to one computer. So he didn't get much time on the computer. But his math teacher saw that he really enjoyed it, was good at it, and so she went out and acquired a computer for him. It was his computer. And she got him a cell phone. Then she took him to an orthodontist and she got him braces. You know, it, it turned out that Cody said, for the first time, I didn't really feel alone. Somebody cared. Then there was another teacher who 
got him driver's education lessons and took him to get his driver's license. And then there was his brother. His brother was 18 years older than he was. 18 years older and was already on his own and actually was making his way in the world and doing fairly well. And it was his older brother who said to Cody, when he getting ready to start the ninth grade, you need to make good grades. You need to go to college. And when you start applying to college, don't just apply to any college. You apply to great colleges. And Cody said something sort of flipped in his own mind. Now that he wasn't feeling alone, now that he was having a little bit of success, he said he kind of went from why bother to why not? He began to think about a greater possibility. And so he did start applying to colleges when that time came. And lo and behold, he did get accepted to MIT. The first person ever from his high school to be accepted to MIT. Now, it wasn't a full ride scholarship that he had. And so it was now a group of teachers that got together and created a pool where they would give money to make sure that Cody had something to eat. He was able to go off to college. He was able to survive, to eat, to thrive. It was there that he made a decision. I'm going to reinvent myself. No longer wanted to be just a shy boy, the one standing back. He went and joined a fraternity. He decided he was coming out of his shell. He was going to make friends. And he did, and he thrived. He got his undergraduate degree. Then he got his master's degree. Then he got accepted to Stanford and went and earned his Ph.D. He now has started a company called Coactive AI. AI is artificial intelligence. He's a brilliant young man. 30 years old, he's now started this company. And all these joint venture capitalists and people are pouring in millions because they believe in what he's going to be able to do. 30 years old. He's gone from being the child who was born in prison to this incredibly successful entrepreneur. And I, I was reading an interview that they had with him, and I thought it was fascinating. He said, I didn't succeed because I'm exceptional. It was the encouragement and support I received by numerous individuals along the way. I didn't need a big, grand gesture just small acts of kindness. In the past, on my best day, my future seemed bleak. Now, on my worst day, my future seems bright. I loved it. I didn't need just a big, grand gesture. It was all of the small, kind acts from so many people along the way. It struck me that that's something every single one of us can do. You may feel like you were not the smartest or the richest or the most powerful for the big grand gesture. Cody would say, I just needed small acts of kindness along the way so I didn't feel alone that came at critical moments. That's what you and I, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, are called to do. This morning, I want to start a new sermon series entitled, What the World Needs Now. 
And we know the answer is love, sweet love. What the world needs now. You and I are living in a time when it seems like we have become more polarized, more antagonistic, more divided than ever before. And yet what the world needs is love. This past Thursday was International Holocaust Day. I don't know if you heard it or not, International Holocaust Day. It was the day in which we're all asked to remember the Holocaust, the Nazis' final solution, the attempt to literally eradicate, exterminate the Jews. It was a time in which we're supposed to remember around the world of what happens so that it never happens again. And yet on the same day as I'm reading about this, I also saw a study that was coming out saying that anti-Semitism is on the rise. That it's growing more than it has in years. In the last five to six years, anti-Semitism has just gone through the roof. On Thursday night, I was downtown at a banquet at the Dialogue Institute. It's an organization of Muslims and Jews and Christians who are committed to dialogue, to come to know one another better. It's an opportunity for us to encourage each other to stand for tolerance and acceptance. While I was there, I got to see Rabbi Harris. She's a wonderful lady. And I said, are you seeing this, this rise in anti-Semitism? She said, absolutely. The things that happen to our children in school, the things that are said, the things that are happening. And I said, this is crazy. I, I, I thought this was 80 years ago, and now we're seeing this? What do you think it is? And she said, we really can't point to one thing that's causing it. We really don't know. Imad and Chauncey was there, a good friend of mine. He's the imam at Mercy Mosque. And he too has said that hate crimes against Muslims have gone through the roof in the last four or five years. And that night, Imad was there to give a, a speech. And he was reminding all of us there that whether you were Jewish or Christian or Muslim, Mohammed said we're all people of the book. That's the Bible. We all trace our heritage back to Abraham. And the people of the book are all supposed to treat each other with respect and kindness and love. But that's not what's happening in our world right now. We are so quick to demonize, to criticize, to call one another names. Today I want to start a five-week sermon series. What the world needs now is love. I wanted to start by us looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 13th chapter. We all know the love chapter. We all love the love chapter. But you need to understand what the love chapter is about. To do that, you've got to go back to the 12th chapter. In the 12th chapter, Paul is talking about the church in Corinth. Now, Paul had come to Corinth and started a church. Corinth was a city of 100,000 people. And in Rome's day, that was an enormous city. And so you had all these people. They were such a diverse background in Corinth. 
And so Paul shows up in the midst of this city and begins calling people together. And the people who all come and join the church, Jews and Gentiles, the Greeks. You have slaves and free. You have the rich and the poor. You have the male and female. Now, you, you have such a diversity of people who are now coming to this thing called the church. And Paul brought them together and began to give them a vision of who they could be and what it meant to be the church. And the church in Corinth grew. It boomed. It was thriving. Paul was there about a year and a half to two years. And then he crossed the Aegean Sea and went to Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, he went to work at starting another church. Now, as he was starting the church in Ephesus, after he is there for about a year, he gets word from the church in Corinth, they're struggling. They're now struggling because they've started arguing about things like, some people are speaking in tongues. I'm speaking in tongues. Are you speaking in tongues? No, I'm better than you are. You need to speak in tongues if you think you're saved. I don't need to speak in tongues. Well, I'm a, a preacher. Well, preachers are certainly not as good as teachers. Teachers think they're better than preachers. But preachers thinking they're better than those who are healers. And no, now suddenly everybody's comparing themselves to each other. I'm better than you. I'm more important. You don't think like me. Well, you're wrong. And they're getting into this huge struggle among themselves about who's most important and what is correct, what is right. And the church is starting to come apart. And so Paul writes in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he starts referring to the church as a body, the body of Christ. And he says, you know, in a body, you have so many different parts and all the parts are needed. Can the head say to the foot, I have no need of you? Can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? No, we are all different and we are all needed to make up the body of Christ. And he comes to the end of the 14th chapter, and I love the way he ends it. He says, and I will show you a more perfect way. That's how he springboards into the love chapter. I will show you a more perfect way. And then he begins. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. He is addressing all those who are speaking in tongues and they think they're better than everybody else and we all need to speak in tongues or you're not saved. This big if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul starts taking on the issues one right after the other every time saying, and if you don't have love, you are nothing. Paul was trying to write back to the church in Corinth to say, you're, you're missing it. You're drifting from who we are. You have different gifts, abilities. We can think different. But if we don't have a foundation of love, we're going to fall apart. We are nothing. What the world needs now is love. I want us to think about that this morning, and I think Paul says two very important things to us. He goes on to say, first, love is patient and kind. How simple is that? And how difficult is that? 
Love is patient and kind. One thing we are not anymore is patient. We're not patient about what we want. If we order something online, we want it delivered tomorrow. But we're not patient with each other. Someone doesn't think the way you think. They don't look the way you want them to look. We, we lose patience with each other. Kind? I'm appalled at the things that people say online about each other, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. And yet when you and I see kindness, we know it and it feels right. You and I know it is right when you see it. I came across a great story about a, a man named Brett Phillips. Brett Phillips is a professional ball player for the Tampa Bay Rays. And he's a starter for them. He's not an all-star, but he's a good player. He's a starter for them. But the wonderful thing about Brett is how much he loves life. He is a person of faith, strong Christian. He's someone who believes he's been blessed with a platform to share joy and love. 20 minutes before every game, he comes out on the field. He'll walk along the sidelines there and start talking to kids. Whatever kids are there, he'll start signing baseballs for them, signing caps for them. But he doesn't just autograph the caps. He'll say, what kind of grades are you making? Are you getting in trouble at school? Are you acting right? It's like he's a parent of all these children who want to come and talk to him. And he'll give an autograph and he'll talk to them. You doing well in school? does that every single game, always has time for the kids. Well, it turns out there's this young lady, Chloe Grimes. Chloe Grimes is eight years old. When she was two, she developed cancer. She went through a lot of chemo and then radiation. She fought it back and they got it into remission and she has done well. Her favorite sport is playing softball. She is a pitcher and she is good. And she has this wonderful spirit and attitude towards life. But recently the cancer came back. And so they're starting with all the treatments again. But she has this wonderful spirit and she's still up and going and strong. And when Tampa Bay Rays heard about her, they said, Chloe, how would you like to come and throw out the first pitch at a game? And she was all over it. And so they had the night for Chloe to come. Who's your favorite player? It's Brett Phillips. Why is it Brett Phillips? Well, he's always having fun. Whenever he hits a home run, he flies like a jet around, and I love the way he looks flying. And she was out there flying, oh, yeah. So who do you think is going to catch when she's throwing the first pitch? Brett Phillips. And he later would say, man, she has an arm like a cannon. Kid is strong. And so eight years old, getting out there on the mound, throwing the first pitch, I mean, that... That's pretty gutsy in and of itself. Her whole team was there. They had seats right behind home plate. They were being treated like royalty. All these other kids were there. Get to enjoy the game. Well, after she threw the first pitch to Brett, then they went over to the side. He was hugging her. She reaches into her pocket and pulls out a bracelet and said, I have a bracelet for you. And it was Chloe Strong to remind you, help her be strong. Pray for her. He takes the bracelet and he puts it on and says, I will wear the bracelet. You are of such a strong spirit. 
Well, the game goes on, and as the game's going on, now they're doing a live interview with Chloe, and she's there in front of all of her friends, and they're talking to her about how are you feeling about your cancer? How are you doing? What do you think about Brett? Why do you like him? She's talking all about how great he is. And she said, I love his smile, and he's so fun. Well, he's actually come to the plate, and he suddenly connects, and he drives this ball towering over the fence. I mean, it went almost out of the entire ballpark. He would later say, I've never hit a home run so far in my life. And now he's circling the bases and all the kids are screaming and Chloe is screaming. And after the game is over, they're interviewing him and, and he's now just tearing up. And he says, I, this is my first time to meet Chloe. Such a wonderful young girl, such a spirit. She gave me strength. She encouraged my spirit. I was blessed. Then they're interviewing Chloe and she goes, well, I'm the one who got blessed. He has given me a strong spirit to fight cancer. She goes to school. Several days later, she's coming home from school and when she gets out to walk up toward the front door, who would be at the front door but Brett Phillips? She sees him and she runs and jumps into his arms and he says, I just wanted to come by to see how you were doing and to tell you that I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your family. And the person who was doing the story said, you know, Brett Phillips is MVP, most valuable presence in a child's life. To be kind. Cody Coleman would say it wasn't one big grand gesture. It was all the small kind things that different people did along the way that made all the difference. I'm reminded this is what you and I can do. Every single one of us, each day, we can do. It takes strength to be patient. It takes strength to choose to be kind. But Paul was saying to the people of Corinth, if we forget that love is patient and kind, we will devour one another. We will pull this church apart and we will kill it. If I am great with knowledge and strength and generosity but have not love, I am nothing. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. Secondly, if love is patient and kind, then love is not arrogant and boastful and rude. Paul wants to be clear. What is it not? It isn't arrogant and boastful and rude. He calls it out because that's exactly what the people of Corinth have become. Arrogant, boastful about what they are doing, rude to one another. I have to say, I find it appalling when I will read things on social media, whether it's Facebook or whether it's going to wind up being Instagram or Twitter, the things that people say to one another, strangers commenting on another stranger, I, I just can't believe we ever became a society that feels like that's really okay to do. 
the way we talk about one another has become so rude. We're boastful, arrogant. That happens in sports. That happens in the entertainment business. It happens in politics. It happens in the church. Paul was trying to warn the people of Corinth. We had this great beginning. You loved one another. No matter who you were, you had a place. You belonged in the community. And now you've become arrogant and boastful and rude. Love is patient and kind. In just a little bit, we're going to be going down and having our reception with Phil Greenwald. Phil has been such a special person in this church for the last 16 years. And over these last uh, weeks, we have found ourselves reminiscing talking about the many different projects we've been involved in, the things we've done, places that we have traveled to try to go for a continuing education, for inspiration, for gaining new vision. As an executive team, we go to different places looking for that. This past week, the four of us, the executive team, Phil, Wendy, Josh, and I, we all went to lunch, and we wound up being in lunch for two, two and a half hours as we were just talking and talking about reminiscing about the past. It was just such good times. But it made me think about, I think, one of the most special trips that we took and the impact that it had on the church. We actually went up to Pittsburgh, and we went up to Pittsburgh so we could go visit Rabbi Myers at the Tree of Life Synagogue. You may remember the Tree of Life Synagogue several years ago. There was a shooting. A man came in during worship on the Sabbath and began shooting and killed several members of the congregation. Like I said, anti-Semitism on the rise. It was horrible. And Rabbi Myers really responded. And, I, and rather than anger and hatred, he talked about what do we have to do to confront evil and what is the way for the forward and the future. thought he just handled it in such a, an amazing way. And, and so I wanted to talk to Rabbi Myers and his own spirit and what did they do. And we went to Tree of Life Synagogue and it really was an incredible and, and positive time. It's while we were there that we started finding out how the Christians and Muslims all came together to support the Tree of Life Synagogue, to support the Jews. And how it was at a Catholic church. They had a marquee out front and they had the sign that said, love your neighbor, no exceptions. Sound familiar? <laughs> like I said, it had such an impact upon us. We said, that needs to be our theme. And it turned out to be our theme for two years as we came back from talking and seeing what was going on. Love your neighbor, no exceptions. That became the rallying cry there in Pittsburgh. How do we do this together? But if you're going to go to Pittsburgh, it's not a very far journey to go down to Latrobe. And you have to go to Latrobe. I mean, because great things happen in Latrobe. If you know, Latrobe is where Arnold Palmer was born. Phil, being a, a great golfer and loving golf so much, had to go see Arnold Palmer's hometown and go see the um, country club. Well, the rest of us all loved Arnold Palmer too, and we all wanted to go. And so we had a great time going to Latrobe Country Club and, and going and learning all about Arnold Palmer and what he did, and truly what an amazing man he was. But the other thing that happens in Latrobe is it's the birthplace of Fred Rogers, of Mr. Rogers. You see, Fred Rogers was a classmate of Arnold Palmer. 
I've never grown up at the same time in the same little town. And so we, we wanted to go learn all about Mr. Rogers because that's when the movie was being made and going to come out with Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And so we wanted to learn all about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We wanted to learn about Mr. Rogers. Well, what we started learning was that, you know, when Fred Rogers was growing up, he wanted to be a great athlete like an Arnold Palmer. And he worked hard to bulk up and to get strong. If you remember what Mr. Rogers looked like at the end of his life, you know he never succeeded. I mean, he never bulked up. He never got strong. He was never a great athlete. In fact, it was Deacon Palmer, Arnold Palmer's dad, who gave golf lessons to Fred Rogers. And after giving him golf lessons, Fred, uh, um, Deacon Palmer would say, giving him golf lessons was able to prove that Fred Rogers did not have some hidden athletic talent. <laughs> Just didn't have it. What he did have was an incredible musical talent. At five years old, he could sit down to a piano and he could play a song by ear. I mean, he could just, he could just play, listen, and he could play. He was a great musician. Most people don't know that Fred Rogers grew up in a family of great means. They had wealth. He was never a young kid to flaunt it, never asking for all the different, oh, I'd like this, I'd like that, I'd like this, I'd like that. That wasn't his spirit. But when he was 10 years old, there was something he did want, and that was a grand piano. Now, when we went to, to go be there at um, Latrobe, we learned all about Owen Palmer, and then went out to St. Vincent College. Went to St. Vincent College, beautiful college, started by the Benedictines 175 years ago. Beautiful college campus. So we went and saw the college campus, but we saw the college campus because that's where you could find the Fred Rogers Museum and Learning Center. And that's where we wanted to go. So we had traveled all the way because we wanted to learn about Fred Rogers and go to the museum. And we went into this museum, and it wasn't near as big as I thought it was going to be. A lot smaller. But you still saw the cardigan sweaters his mother would knit for him to wear. You would see the shoes he was wearing. You would see the little trolley car. I mean, we went in and began looking at the museum. It was only the four of us there, only four of us. And while we were wandering around looking at things, a lady came out and said, Can I help you? Oh, we're just kind of looking. Where are you from? Well, all four of us are Methodist ministers from Oklahoma City. That got their attention. Four Methodist ministers traveled from Oklahoma City to come to Fred Rogers Museum. Well, she goes into the back, and in a moment she comes back out with Roberta Schromberg. Roberta was the executive director of the museum. And so she came out to talk with us, and we're asking questions and looking at things. She could tell, we're serious. We've done our research. And so Roberta says, why don't you come back here with me? And so she takes us through a door, and now we're in a different part where the public doesn't go. There were people who were back there working and doing projects for early childhood development and doing studies, and we're being introduced to all these different people. And then she takes us, and we sing all kinds of other artifacts that were Fred's. She takes us back to her office, and when she does, she points to this big stuffed chair in her office and said, that was Fred's. It's where Fred would go and sit to write and think and create the scripts. When they got ready to shoot the movie and Tom Hanks came to town, they came and got this chair immediately so it could be in the movie and that was one of those small things, again, that would give it authenticity 
where Tom would sit playing the part of, of Fred Rogers. I looked at the chair and I said, could I sit there? I mean, then it would be the chair where Fred and Tom and Bob sat. She said, absolutely. It was comfortable. It fit so well. I really enjoyed sitting in Fred's chair. We were talking and we were laughing. We walked out of her office and when we did, there I saw it. This black grand Steinway piano. The thing that I knew Fred had asked for. I just said, I bet this is Fred's piano. And Rita just kind of smiled and said, well, yes, it is. I knew the story. I knew the story how Fred had gone to his grandmother and said, I don't ask for many things, but I want to ask for a piano, a great piano, a piano that I can grow with, a piano I can learn on, a piano that I could keep for the rest of my life. And his grandmother said, okay. She gave him an address. He got on a trolley by himself uh, at 10 years old. She rode all the way to this address, and there was Steinway Piano Company. He went in for a number of hours and sat and played on every single piano. And finally, after he had played on all the pianos, he went to the salesman and said, I'd like this one, please. Well, it was an heirloom piano. It was built in 1920. It had then been refurbished in New York. It was like brand new. It was amazing. And the price of it in today's dollars was about $70,000. And so he said, I'll take this one. And the salesman said, so you have a pretty lucrative paper route? <laughs> he said, would you just hold it for me? Okay. He got on the trolley. He drove back to his grandmother's house. He showed her what the one that he wanted. He explained about it. Here's the price. She wrote a check. He got back on the trolley. He rode back to the store, came in, handed the salesman the check and said, could you deliver it to Latrobe, please? And they did. It was his grand piano. When he moved to New York and he lived in a, a high apartment building, they had to bring it up outside the apartment building to then bring it in through the window to fit in his apartment so he could have it and play. He had it when he then went to Atlanta, when he came back to Pittsburgh. Wherever he went, that grand piano went with him and he had it for the rest of his life. And now, back there in the back, all I, there was this black grand piano. I knew it. And I looked at it and I said, could we sit down and play it? She said, absolutely. Wendy immediately hit the bench and began to play. She had this big smile on her face as she was there playing Fred Rogers' piano. And then Josh hit the bench and he began to play and he was just smiling. And then I hit the bench and I rubbed my hands on the keys. <laughs> but that was still a holy moment just being able to touch it. And I knew that this is where he sat when he wrote those songs, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I love you just the way you are. All these songs that he wrote for children. And I looked over to Roberta and I said, so what kind of a man was Fred Rogers? You knew him. What kind of a man was Fred Rogers? 
without hesitating, she said, he was the most humble man I ever knew. He obviously came from a very wealthy family. You'd never know it. He was incredibly successful and famous. You'd never know it. We'd go somewhere and he'd have a show. Kids would be out the door, down the block, and around the corner. He never talked about it. He was the most humble man I ever knew. And I thought, Fred Rogers was a man of great faith. And he understood love is not arrogant or boastful or rude. Love is patient and kind. Fred Rogers was patient and kind. And he blessed millions of children's lives. We can all do it. We can all do it. It takes a little strength to choose not to be arrogant and boastful and rude. It takes strength to choose to be patient and kind. But we can do it. And it's how God will use you to build a better world. What the world needs now is love. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.